Welcome to N20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. From 2040 to 2195. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, permaculture, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. Detroit is changing. The city cut utilities in over half the neighborhoods. Electric, water, and garbage pickup. Roads are in bad shape. Updated cars won't drive down many of the roads to avoid getting damaged. Citizens repair roads on their own. 26-year-old Bud wakes on the fifth floor of what used to be a curtain factory. His bedroom was an office until he moved the desks out and his bed in. He parts burlap curtains in time to see two sky cranes cross the sky, taxi cabs for the new rich. They don't have to worry about pothole roads on their way to important appointments. Tree spreading baby leaves cover most of the ground. The buildings in the area were abandoned long before the population dropped, and few people come out this way. Beyond the trees, newer buildings glimmer in the morning light. He walks down the hall and opens the door to a room where the glass is removed from the windows, and a breeze passes through. This is his condensation room where salvaged refrigerator parts hang. Reclaimed solar panels on the roof power condenser pipes that cool and pull water from the air. Rain gutters under the pipes collect the water that drips off. Charcoal chunks in the gutters filter the water. He turns a tap at the end of a series of tanks and filters, and cool water flows into a jug. Lifting the jug to his lips, he takes a swig. His squat has everything he needs. Batteries from an old BWF supplied power. A couple of rainwater catchment tanks supply his shower water. In the winter, Araka's stove keeps him warm. Sure, sometimes the power runs out, but he's managed. He gets ready for work, hoists his bike on his shoulder, and jogs down the stairs. On the second floor, he lowers his bike out the window, down on a rope. He lifts a ladder off the stairs, lowers it out the window, and climbs down. After stashing the ladder in the ruins of an apartment building, he bikes down a trail toward new downtown. Trees and wild plants have conquered broken bricks and moss-eaten concrete. Running late, he must bike through what was a quiet run-down neighborhood, but now is where drug addicts squat. It's a pity because he used to look forward to seeing people here, but now, he hurries through and hopes he doesn't get shot. It's normal to see a dead body here and birds flying circles above. Window glass is smashed out on most of the apartment buildings. Dodging debris, he rides away from a crud-covered man who stumbles after him. Hey, you. Get back here. You got money. The nerves on Bud's back curl as he wonders if the man will shoot him. The next few blocks appear nicer. But utilities were cut here. Few cars wait on the streets. Garbage piles are high on the sidewalks. Every time he rides down the street, he sees someone loading a moving truck. It looks like bombs went off in all the stores. This was upscale before. Stepping out of a heavy-duty door in an alley, he adjusts the light body armor, light bars of plastic sewn into his jacket, and gives the helmet he wears a slap. Am I on? Over comms, with a reedy voice Blazo says, your friend Cam is smudged or something. Bud rubs his thumbs over a small lens on the front of his helmet. How's that? Blazo says, good, I guess. Bud is a rent-a-cop now. It's the tenth job he's had in the past year. He walks by the building site for the village. A car core fence surrounds a 10 block by 10 block area, holding the deepest hole Bud has ever seen. He can look down on the backs of birds flying circles inside the cavity. There's going to be an arena down there. So they say. Ahead, a woman stuffs papers through the fence. The pages flutter down. Bud picks up his pace. Ma'am. No littering ma'am. She turns her old face to him, and her eyes are swimming in tears. 
I took my kids to school today. Bud slows and softens his tone. Well, that's good, isn't it? Her mismatched clothes are worn but clean. Her skin is clean, but weather-scarred, and she has hair on her cheeks, an indicator of homelessness. It's fucking great. I couldn't keep them in school when we didn't have a place to live. I lost my job yesterday and you know what? Bud says, what? She says, I'm not terrified that we'll get kicked out of our hotel or friend's place because I can't pay. But says, squatting. The woman nods. All we needed was for half the population to die. Who'd've guessed? Bud says, I think it was more than that. In his helmet, Lazo says, Tennessee, keep it moving. He tips his helmet. Good luck. Homeless people did join the workforce that saved America. Not all of them or as many of them as people from other classes, but what the fuck? Is it such a crazy idea to give people a place they can sleep at night? Stupid capitalistic America with its head up its ass. He jogs across the street into new downtown. A standalone robot buzzes down the sidewalk on wheels as wide as dinner plates. The lighter sensors and multi-directional cameras look familiar. It looks of higher quality than biotic robots. Goggle is printed on its side. Oh man. That robot got Bud's old job. He used to be a mapper for Goggle. He liked that job. There the robot goes, into that building to update Goggle maps. It won't ever make intercompany drug deliveries for cash on the side. Or will it? It probably doesn't even speak. A sky crane lowers a passenger container on laser-thin cables to a parking space. Four people get out, and the crane pulls the container back up. A man wearing a suit rides in a follow trailer. Follow trailers are tall boxes with spoke wheels on the sides. The owner can load it up and it'll follow them, or the owner can open a door on the back, climb in and ride. Lots of people use them. Bud wants one. It still weirds him out to see all the robots. There's a swarm of them repairing the road. There's a crew of robots replacing a building facade. Cleaning robots in a lobby vacuum and dust. He counts more robots than people. Over the headset, Lazo says, 2, 15, and 9, go to 10th and Howard. Attempted break-in. Bud speeds up to a steady run, touching his pistol to make sure it's there. An hour later, he walks through the swap meet on the south side of New Downtown. In barren blocks, hundreds come to sell wares. Everyone knows the sellers got their wares from the homes of those who died. Tables large and small, presumably carried out of abandoned houses, remain in the lots for first-come sellers to set up shop on. The rest spread out sheets and blankets on the ground to place their wares on. The first time Bud patrolled the market, vendors sold high-priced items. He doesn't know much about art, but certainly, a lot of the art was worth more than a few hundred bucks. So much jewelry sold, real jewelry, not pawn shop junk, Bud wondered. Do the sellers not know they could get much more for the goods, or do they just not care? Now jewelry sells for thousands more, but buyers have to ask around, who's selling jewelry? The market offers estate sale levels of quality, items like silver candle holders, a rare coin collection, and an engraved revolver. Eventually, it'll be more like garage sale level quality. Two groups come together. The buyers are the test passers who live in New Downtown. Some are only recently rich, others have formal college educations. The sellers are willing to risk their lives raiding buildings when others also want to raid the same buildings. Bud chats it up with both sellers and buyers, and hears their stories. One buyer was only recently hired and wants to invest in some expensive goods, in case they don't pass a test and keep their job. A seller survived an exchange of gunfire and claimed the goods her attacker had on him. Four pairs of autographed Air Jordans. Lots of sellers make calls as soon as they sell something, then child couriers show up to drop off drugs. Sellers OD in the market regularly, convulsing on the ground or slumping over, comatose. Laser reminds Bud, leave the sellers alone. You are working for them. Just look out for pickpockets, stalkers, anyone who bothers the buyers. Protect the buyers, not the sellers. Bud watches a woman with long salt and pepper braids fall back on the ground, hitting her head. 
He swallows hard and fights the urge to quit his job over comms, so he can help her. A man wearing expensive clothes buys items from another man with a burn mark on his face. As the rich man walks away a woman dressed in rags pushes him down, grabs his pack, and flees. Lazo shouts, heads up to Ness. Go after her. Bud pushes through a group and chases after her. Pop. The woman in rags waves a gun in the air, still running and jumping over merchandise. Bud drops behind a table. Lazo shouts, don't stop, keep after her. At the end of his shift, Bud returns to the office and changes out of his uniform. As he walks down a windowless hall, Lazo calls after him, Bud, in a hurry to get out of here. Come back here. Bud turns around and heads back. Inside a small room, a very bald Blazo sits in front of a dozen screens. Bud says, Hi, boss. Blazo rotates in his chair. You like working here? Bud says, Sure, I do. Blazo says, Central has a test lined up for you. If you take it, you could get promoted. Bud says, I'll pass. Blazo says, You sure about that? I can text you the link. Bud says, Nah. Hey, what are those? He points at the screens. Stick figures move realistically in a cityscape simulation. Lazo says, those are our officers, the red ones. Bud says, we're the stick figures instead of live video. How are they in third person? The cameras on our helmets couldn't get that. Lazo laughs. Your VR dots. We record all your movement in exact location to millimeter accuracy. Bud says, why? Lazo laughs again. For the data. Robots need big data to train on. Bud says, but our company couldn't provide enough data. We only have around 50 officers. Blazo says, 53, but it isn't just a new downtown branch. We're collecting officer data from all major cities. We're getting 3D movement of hundreds of thousands of officers. We never could have done this without the VR dots. I wouldn't have hired you if you didn't have the VR dots. Bud says, you didn't tell me that. Blazo says, I asked if you had VR dots. Bud says, I remember. How long will it take to get enough data? Blazo leans back. These days they can use data to procedurally generate interactions. For every recorded event, they can create hundreds of simulated events. Bud folds his arms. Now I know why VR dots were given to everyone. Blazo says, I heard it was so VR internet wouldn't die. Bud says, I agreed in the fine print for you to record my VR dots when I'm on duty. Blazo says, of course. It's in there. Turning, Bud says, have a good night Blazo. Blazo calls to him, I'll text you the test. You could earn a lot more. You're a smart guy. Ride the robot wave with the rest of us. Bud heads for the bad cover band bar in Old Downtown. Lower than street level, it stretches from one corner to another. People inside can watch legs walk past windows near the ceiling beams. The bar counter was removed to make room for more tables, booths, and a live stream stage. People jump on stage to read a poem, tell a life story, sing a song, or whatever they feel like performing for the live broadcast to the internet. Screens on the walls play actor swap movies. Characters from one movie or series replace the actors in another movie or series. In one, the cast from the hottest romantic comedy take the place of the actors in the latest space horror film. Another places the cast from a movie depicting the birth of hip-hop in a 1950s teen B-film that originally had only white actors. Bud sits at one of the crowded tables. He has helmet hair and wishes he could have taken a shower before coming here. I miss the bartenders. Dark-skinned Clarence slaps away Ben's hand. Expensive bars still have human bartenders. They all look up as one of the suspended robots glides past with a tray of pitchers and glasses. Bud says, bartenders always took a liking to me. I never tried to get free drinks, but I always got free drinks. Clarence says, slut. Bud laughs. He empties the pitcher in his glass, and his face lights up as he sets it down. His foldable vibrates on the table. I'll get the next one. 
Clarence nods in Ben, with wide lips and shaved brow, says, yes. Bud taps an option on his foldable knowing money will automatically get deducted from his account. Lita and April walk down the steps from one of the entrances. Lita, of Korean descent, wears a shape change smock over fighter tights. The first generation of shape change clothing has four points of interactive stretch and shrink in the back, front, and along each sleeve. The smock slowly bellows then hugs her body depending on her speed of movement and whether she sits or stands. April once called herself the Black Pippi Longstocking. She wears a frayed sweater and self-patched pants. She likes to sew twigs and dried plants into her clothes and does her hair in strange ways. Wearing fingerless gloves, she waves to Bud. Bud says, hey Ben, you said you wanted to try Coke Light. Ben says, yeah. You said it's not addictive, right? Bud says, as addictive as coffee. April bumps into Bud as she sits. Lita lowers herself onto a chair on the other side of the table. I'm totally addicted to coffee. My heart would stop if I didn't get my coffee Bud smirks. Ben here has been curious to try D-Light. Lita slowly turns her whole upper half to face Ben. I can help you. Ben says, thank you. A suspended robot lowers two drinks and sets them down in front of Lita and April. Clarence says, I didn't know you guys knew Bud. April claps. Are you kidding? This is the guy who kept us alive. Bud brought us deer meat during the food crisis. That was when I was a bartender in that little place in some town. Clarence twists his head. A deer. Bud, you never told me about a deer. April says, and rabbit, and wild vegetables. Bud rubs his palms together. And we grilled them in the back alley. April, you were living in the wheelless delivery van at that time, right? April says, yeah. Are you still hunting? Bud says, not lately. I've been trying to get the fungi in Sam's meat to grow and plant slurries. I want to make my own meat. I've tried a few times but it doesn't work. Ben says, they pasteurize it. The fungi are dead. Bud says, oh shit. Clarence says, has anyone seen Troy? Lita says, he joined the war. Clarence jumps to his feet. Ben throws up his arms. What? Bud says, that's weird. I thought they were against war. Weren't they Buddhist, like practicing Buddhist? Lita nods. April says, it came out of the blue. I never heard them talk about it before. Bud says, Lita, you look kind of glum. Lita says, my job was concluded, or whatever they're calling it. Ben says, I can get you a job. Clarence says, April, did they drop you too? April looks down and purses her lips. Lita says, she got promoted. Again. April, you're going to be a millionaire by Christmas. April twists a dried flower in her hair. I hope I can still hang out with you guys. Ben says, you're not the only one with a reversal of fortune. My parents and my sister passed, leaving their properties. Both properties are in neighborhoods where the utilities were cut off. So, I'm squatting over here even though I'm a homeowner, a two-time homeowner. I may not look it, but I'm sitting on a lot of wealth. Bud says, I've had more than 10 jobs in the last year. Clarence says, I thought you were smart. April says, shut up Clarence. That wasn't nice. Bud says, no, it's okay. I just don't like taking tests. No one says anything for a few moments. Ben says, who wants to go dancing? I feel like dancing. Bud stands on a dirt road in the blazing sunlight. Fields of corn wave in the wind. The gravel feels hard against his bare feet. The wind smells dry and dusty. A woman's voice calls to him. Bud. He turns around. Evelyn. His classmate from high school stands in the middle of the road. She wears a business suit with a skirt. Her hair whips around in wind. She smiles sadly at him. Bud says, you're alive. My brother said you died. She watches him, lightly smiling. Bud says, would you say you died? Where are you wearing a suit? She gazes at him, seeing him completely. He takes a step toward her. Bud wakes up in April's giant brown bed. 
April and Lita sit at the counter next to the open kitchen sipping from mugs. Bud says, I dreamed of a friend who passed away. Lita says, that's sad. Bud says, it was like she was trying to tell me something. I know how cliche that sounds. I'm an atheist for Christ's sake. April says, you miss your friend. Bud says, yeah, I miss my friend. He gets out of bed, finds his pill container in his jacket pocket, takes out a pexin, and swallows it. Guns fire outside. All three are on their feet and run to the fourth story windows. They kneel on the cushion of a window seat, looking out at the street below. Guns fire. Lita covers her ears. 10, maybe 12 people run down the street waving guns. Lita says, look at the one by the door. Some of the runners stop in front of a door, pound on it, and kick at it. April says, are we safe? Bud says, it's across the street. April says, I swear, as soon as the village opens, I'm moving there. Lita steps out of the window seat. Whoa. You move there. April says, well, yes. Bud steps out of the window. Well, I hope you invite us over. They all laugh nervously. April says, of course I will. Lita says, I know I'm no good at all the robot stuff. And April, it's just wild to see you have a serious job. But Bud, why don't you get a robot job? You always talk about heat batteries and turning crap into fuel and all that. You can watch some good turn videos about how to pass the tests. Bud says, I don't know. Tests in me just don't work. April says, maybe you have a learning disability. Bud says, nah. Why do you need a boss anyway? Everyone assumes you need to work for someone. I can go into any wooded area and survive just fine. When April calls a car, a half-white arrives, built to handle degraded roads. April takes the front seat, and Bud and Lita share the back seat. Bud says, I'm thinking of changing my name. Lita says, why? Bud says, um, every time I hear the name Bud I don't feel like it fits who I am. Lita says, really? April says, I get it. I feel the same way about my name. Bud says, oh but I like your name April. April faintly smiles to herself. Lita says, what do you change your name to? Bud says, I don't know, something that lets people know I'm a flaming liberal. April says, how about flower? Lita says Dylan. Bud says, no, I'm not trying to be cool. Something I can set and forget. The car takes them into some town, the one neighborhood that's seen some improvements despite having its utilities cut. Before the cuts, lots of the buildings were collapsed or demolished, renters weren't great at taking care of the yards or buildings, and litter-cluttered pedestrian areas. After the cuts, the upper cusp of homeless people moved here. Families who couldn't afford rent moved close together, and now treat the buildings they squat in as their own. They pick up litter, patch walls, tame vegetation, and repaint. Pea patches sprout up in empty lots. Illegitimate stores have opened, selling anything from repaired solar power stations to root flower and wild produce. Micro schools and daycares have opened. The hand-painted signs on the stores resemble the signs penhandlers hold up on the sides of roads. Children play baseball in an empty lot. Families and debtors who could never quite manage not to be homeless are finding a place to spread roots. Lita and Buddy Una, taking in the scene. April says, see, I told you this has become a special place. Bud says, it's how I imagine a homesteader's town to look. The car takes them to a seven-story building. Lots of signs out front say things like, men's haircuts, see room 207, and veteran medic can help with health issues, room 511. Bud, Lita, and April get out, and the half-wide departs crunching loose rocks and avoiding broken pavement. On either side of the stairs to the main entrance, people gather at entrances to the basement. As the three walk to one of the groups, people in their 20s and 30s look over at them. The three pass through the group and enter. In a vast room, the time-beaten, gaudy carpet shows square patches where slot machines once stood. Overhead lights brighten and dim in waves. April leads Lita and Bud to a group of people seated in folding chairs where they find seats. One person in the group speaks for several minutes. 
Others raise their hands, and the one who just finished chooses the next speaker. A man wearing a tight t-shirt says, I just lost someone I hoped would be the one. He pointed out to me how often I lie. I never really thought about it before. It never seemed like a problem. I thought everyone lies. Now I'm wondering how many people opted out of friendship with me because of my lies. I feel exposed and blind to myself at the same time, and it's a very uncomfortable feeling. A woman wearing a baseball hat says, there's so much toxic behavior where I'm staying. I used to think ranting was fun and a good way of punishing rude people, but it causes more problems for me later on. What does it mean that most of my interactions with people are battles? I'm fighting as I offer my heart to Jesus a stern-faced woman interrupts. No religious talk. There are people here who have been traumatized by religion. With a strained smile, the baseball cap wearing woman says, my apologies. I just know in my heart that Christ is the only answer. I'm done. A man who probably started the day drinking slurs, I don't want to be angry anymore. I'm tired of seeing others as the enemy. I've been hearing a book called The Social Animal, and it says that outside of human society, there's no right or wrong. Right and wrong only have to do with how we treat each other and the shared environment. That blows my mind. We can't cheat if there isn't someone else to cheat. If we cheat ourselves, we aren't being mean, we're just being foolish. Nature doesn't give a rat's ass about right and wrong. The universe has nothing to do with right and wrong. It's just us and how well we treat each other. Bud's foldable, having detected he was in some kind of social gathering, vibrates in his pocket instead of ringing. A girl in her teens says friend of snaky cat puppet here. When I heard about this group I thought, that's it. Everyone thinks you have to be rich, or beautiful, or talented, or loved. When will treating others well take center stage? That's what others want from you, not the other stuff. I've been trying to appreciate others and for the first time, I feel like I've finally figured out how to be popular. I mean, I'm not popular, but more people are friendly with me. That's all I want. I feel better thinking I may have figured out how to get what I want out of life. After the meeting, people congregate outside. April walks over and holds her hand out to the nerdy guy who organized the meeting. Bud and Lita wave by the road. Lita says, well, it didn't turn into an orgy. Bud says, hold on, I gotta check my fold. He takes his foldable out. The guy who slurred walks toward Bud and Lita. Lita says, oh I knew it. This is just a pickup spot in disguise. Bud says, I got terminated. He shows the screen to Lita. My job has been quote, successfully concluded, unquote. Lita frowns. I'm sorry. A surge of energy speeds Bud's movements. They begged me to work for them and then replaced me with appliances. I'm done. You people need to work for someone. I'm telling you, I'm never going to work for anyone ever again, not for as long as I live. He begins walking away. Lita calls out, where are you going? Don't leave me here. Bud says, go stand with April. I'll catch up later. He jogs down the street, deeper into some town. Thank you for listening. My landing page is solomeshan.com. There you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes a timeline and illustrations.